We are all aware of how rapidly climate change is transforming the Arctic, but in the past year, the international Arctic has undergone a sea change politically. Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine in February 2022 has had consequences across the globe and also immediate effects for cooperative transnational settings for Arctic governance and security. So what have the consequences been for the Arctic and what can we do going forward? Welcome to this episode of The World Stage. My name is Alana Wilson-Rove. I'm a research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and head of our Center for Ocean Governance. I'm joined by Dr. Mike Sfrega, Chair and Distinguished Fellow of the Polar Institute at the Wilson Center in D.C. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me, Alana. So in the past year, there have been any number of changes. We've seen the Arctic Council that brought together Arctic states, indigenous peoples, representatives, experts, and other actors been put on pause and then re resume informally. Finland and Sweden, two of the states that meet in the Arctic Council, have applied to join NATO, which changes the security dynamic of the region. And we've also seen the kind of interdependence between the Russian Arctic and other Western actors strongly reduced with the suspension of people-to-people -people diplomacy and the flight of Western capital from flagship Russian Arctic development projects, and the list goes on. Mike, for you, what would you say is the change in the past year of Arctic governance and security that has maybe surprised you the most or that you find the most significant? Well, there's so many of them. Uh, I, I think the, the thing that strikes me most is, is how resilient the Arctic, the collective Arctic community is. And I don't mean resilient in a climate way. I mean, res the resilience in the foundational organizations, the uh, institutional partnerships, the uh, professional to professional relationships over that were, have been built over the years have allowed us to endure what we're seeing play out in Europe right now and all of the impacts. So I think I'm, I'm quite pleased with how resilient, when you look at all the cooperation that actually is going on among the Arctic nations and, and interested non-Arctic nations and partners like the EU, I'm amazed at how strong those bonds are, what they have endured, and uh, how, how interesting that we have all highlighted how important NATO is and the transatlantic alliance and, you know, as a U.S. citizen, colleagues talking about how important the U.S.-Nordic relationship is, and not just through an Arctic, you know, a hard security lens, but through a broad security lens. So I, I get, well, that was not a one-word answer for you, <laughs> but I think that's what's been amazing to me, is to see the value of decades-long relationships, personal and professional and organizational, and what their value have been collectively through all of this. They've sort of allowed us to navigate where we are today over this course of a year of you know, horror and unpredictability um, and, and uncertainty. We thought the Arctic was, we thought it was Arctic exceptionalism. And what I have found is that maybe it isn't about Arctic exceptionalism. Maybe it's just that the Arctic is extraordinary. Hmm. Maybe, that, maybe that's, that's a, a way to describe it. I like your point about relationships in the Arctic and across national boundaries and professional networks. I kind of frame that for myself in a bit more of a kind of nerdy science way and think about networked governance. And I think for me too, that's been one of the things that I will kind of take away with me as a, a good surprise, despite, as we said, how difficult this year has been. And of course, how much we've watched with horror events unfolding in Ukraine in this brutal war. 
but to see that the other Arctic states and the kind of the broader network could work out policy pathways forward, even if they were informal and a bit kind of, um, you know, put together in a way that just worked in these circumstances mm -hmm. and isn't anyone's necessarily ideal of how, how Arctic governance mm -hmm. should work in an ideal situation. And I think that is like a departure from the previous toolbox of that will treat this, try to cushion the space from geopolitical tensions. And obviously, the reinvasion just simply rendered that it wasn't tenable. It's not a tenable position anymore. And because at the time with Russia holding the chairmanship or the chairship of the Arctic Council, there was just no way that that kind of positive PR or travel or interconnection could take place with Russia hosting. But I think that's what's made me kind of the enduring resili resilience of Arctic cooperation has also really um, made an impression on me. And I think it comes back to, you know, occasionally in the past, like before, you know, before the pandemic or, you know, several years ago, you would often hear, well, you know, the Arctic kind of governance space, it isn't streamlined enough. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, kind of a bit too much of a, a network of experts. And then, of course, the very important rights holders of the region, the indigenous people sovereignty, providing another layer of governance mm -hmm. and then the states. And I actually think it's that, kind of interwoven complexity that has made this Arctic policy community and broader expert community able to, to find a way forward. So I think it does speak to kind of well-resourced and broad governance networks, mm -hmm. provide some additional ballast. And I'll mention a little bit, of course, informality has its risks and downfalls, but that there are also ways of working with that. So, so, so to follow up on that, let me yeah. let me just follow up on that. So I, I've thought about this too. So if you had, it, it, and it's not just about the Arctic Council for us. It, Arctic Council is important, and it's one piece of the governance structure uh, of of the fora of a place where these countries and 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 and, and the stakeholders, the, the 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 rights holders, come together. It's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary uh, organization, but it's just one piece of the fabric. And so I think you're talking about all these other strands of the fabric that have been woven together over the years, informally and formally, whether it's the IMO or you name the, you name the group, that, that informality and then the formality of them, the way they come and go, it kind of wanes and, and ebbs and flows, um, perhaps unknowingly that's allowed it to be more flexible, mm -hmm. right? It's allowed the Arctic community to move in a certain way like like water around a rock yeah. uh, in a way that if it was just one structure or one way of doing business, it might have broken far earlier. Mm. I think that's a really great way of putting it. And I, and I mean, of course, redundancy isn't a popular word. Mm. It doesn't sound economical. It doesn't sound politically streamlined. But I think the idea of kind of an interweaving of capacities and knowledge and contact points in various both global and regional settings in both soft law and in mm -hmm. formal agreements form this more resilient whole. And there certainly is no absence of a sense of uncertainty or challenges ahead when it on many different levels when it comes to Arctic security and governance. And I think, you know, now nearly... Uh, you know, a year in from from Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine in this brutal war, that there's a sense that you know, of course, these impacts on Arctic governance are not it's not something just to weather for the short term. That there certainly is a longer term impact, and that likely before we can perhaps resume some of the forms of cooperation we've had, we'd be looking at maybe a bit of a new Russia. And that is, as none of us will know exactly at what point 
or when that might come about. But what you and I, Mike, and our, our co-editors for a recent report, Karsten Fries and Ulf Svardrup, what we argue in a report that's been released at the Munich Security Conference is that key actors who have capacities need to keep working diligently to make sure that uncertainty doesn't result in inaction, mm-hmm. that result, we need policy implementation and in progress on key Arctic issues. I was wondering, Mike, if you could tell us a bit about the Arctic Security Roundtable at Munich and maybe what kind of ends can this sort of high-level dialogue achieve, even in today's situation? Yeah, well, the, the Munich Security Conference's Arctic Security Roundtable, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon, I would say. For those of us, like you and I and all of our friends and colleagues who have worked in this field for a long, long time, have been pushing the Arctic rock up the hill, that the Arctic's important. It's, it's, it's a global Arctic. Uh, it's, it's unique, but yet it's not as unique as some might think. It is, it's just it's part of the fabric of, of our society. And we have spent decades talking about the importance of the Arctic and how it's connected to all the other facets of, of society. From, from Munich, uh, you know, high level, those of us in the field know what the Munich Security Conference is, but the fact that they carved out a place, Chatham House rules, closed doors, invite only, to begin about five years ago to talk about the security aspects of the North. That's, that's a really important discussion to have at a place like that. And I know one of our goals for the, the report coming this year as the input report, which we've called Navigating Breakup, Security Realities of Freezing Politics and Thawing Landscapes in the Arctic, is that the title serves as a reminder that the drivers for Arctic policymaking and transnational governance do remain. The indigenous, indigenous sovereignties that cross national borders, the interweaving of ecosystems. And so we were lucky, I think, in being able to, for the report, to be able to convene just kind of a wide range of different kinds of experts to provide input to the, to the report by writing on chapters. And that we asked them all to focus on change. We had no ambition of being encyclopedic. We mm-hmm. had to make a selection. And so our authors focused especially on the problem of climate change impacts in a broad sense of security and also on strategic competition dynamics, trying to get a handle on Arctic change by looking at the policy of three key Arctic states, mm-hmm. Russia, the USA, and also China as a very highly interested non-Arctic state. So I just wanted to share, I'm going to kind of transition and have a little conversation about U.S. Arctic policymaking, but before that I wanted to share some key points from the chapters, probably at the risk of annoying the authors because it will just be one little selection, but (laughs) I really recommend reading the report to our listeners and I'll tell you where to find it at the end. So we have these two chapters on climate change by Jan Gunnar Vinterd and Marisol Maddox, your colleague Mike. And they cover how climate change is impacting the physical nature of the region and also communities and prospects for human and military security. And they show how climate change is anticipated to impact almost all aspects of living and working in the Arctic land and sea, while also pointing to this adaptive capacity and resilience that can and will continue to need to be marshaled and and supported. And then the report kind of takes a, a quick tour, very quick, through the key policies of Russia, China, and the U.S., updated to reflect changes since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think Pavel Bayev's take on Russia kind of shows, reflects a strategic and diplomatic atmosphere in Russia that may still be reeling to incorporate the consequences of the country's own invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine, which they initially anticipated would trigger 
you know, kind of a tepid response from a disunited West and be over quickly. And that, of course, thankfully hasn't happened, that Ukraine has fought back and Western countries and actors have worked together to support them. And what Bayev concludes with is that there's still an atmosphere of mutual military restraint in the high north, and that's something he gets support from from my colleague Karsten Fries' chapter where he looks at these, these um, the, the security situation more generally. But Bayev cautions us to keep in mind that losses in Ukraine are going to continue to impact on the rationality or what sort of rationality is at play in the decision-making of the Kremlin. And that's actually something Karsten also underlines that we need to, we can't take kind of economic growth and being served well by international law mm -hmm. as predictions of how Russia will engage. Now, it's interesting to see how in Marx Langtine's chapter on China, you see how China has been also struggling to figure out how to, they have a commitment, a political diplomatic mm -hmm. commitment to Russia, and they've not yet made any real statement on kind of, uh, made quite vague statements about kind of the, what is happening in Ukraine and whose fault it is, kind of taking a difficult to sustain um, neutral position. But at the same time, many of their Arctic ambitions are also being impacted both by, um, by other issues like the COVID pandemic, economic downturn, and Mark really describes how the Polar Silk Road has become kind of a, basically a Russia-China endeavor mm -hmm. or package. And that's something that Troy... Buffard, in his review of the U.S. politics, really presents a lot of these interesting developments in American policymaking that I'm also going to chat more with you about. But he also points out that the China-Russia relationship is a dynamic to follow closely, and mm -hmm. that kind of features in some of these documents, to see how Russia may or, or respond to Russia's degraded political position internationally. So I'm glad we kind of, you might have a few thoughts on the report, but I'm also glad we ended up on the point of U.S. Arctic politics and policy making because there have been some really recent developments there and you've been kind of up close to several of them. What do you think are some of the, the key things uh, we should be taking away from the current status of U.S. Arctic policy making? Well, one of the big takeaways, at least for me, uh, that this, this Biden-Harris administration has um, kind of walked the talk here. They've, they've actually, there's a, there's a, what I would call a a continuum of effort that the federal agencies, the inner agencies, um, all have the Arctic as part of not just their narrative, but there's actually work being done. So the resurrection of the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, the inner agency, the effort in, within the, U the U.S. government that's focused on the Arctic is, is um, an Obama creation. It was on hiatus during the Trump administration, and it's back with the Biden administration, but just isn't about the steering committee. The fact that the U.S. also uh, just released the updated national strategy for the Arctic region. That's an important thing. That's a 10-year document, and that holds many things we just talked about within its very framework, security, climate change, environmental protection, uh, environmental stewardship, uh, economic development, sustainable economic development in the North, particularly in Alaska. That's three of the four pillars. And the fourth is international cooperation, writ large. So those four permeate now an implementation plan that is currently being written. The report, the NSAR was just released, and they were already working on an implementation plan. That kind of remarkable it speed. It is a remarkable speed. Hmm. At the same time, the, the, 
the commission that I have the honor of chairing, the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, is about to send to the president uh, and Congress and release to the public our goals uh, and objectives report, the Arctic Research Goals and Objectives Report, that'll be from 2023 to 2024. And just several months ago, the Interagency Arctic Research Policy Committee, it's just the letters galore here, but mm. IARPIC, <laughs> released their five-year Arctic Research Plan. Now, think about that and then all of the DOD strategies that have come out. And the Coast Guard has an Arctic strategy. It, it may sound like a bunch of stuff, and it is, but it's not. This is the U.S. government in the last several years, but in particular the last year and a half or so, creating a Venn diagram of a continuity effort, a continuum of, of commitment. These are all my words, but they're not just words. There's actually actions happening here. And so I think internal to the United States, it's reiterating, or maybe for the first time communicating to the public, our own domestic audience, that the Arctic is important to the United States. We are an Arctic nation. That, that's been a hard sell in our country for the longest time. Not so much now, and not because of Ukraine and NATO aspirations of Finland and Sweden. It's just there's an understanding of climate and, and other issues. But I think equally important that our partners and allies and friends in the North can see that we have a national strategy for the Arctic region. We have an Arctic Executive Steering Committee. We have a U.S. Arctic Research Commission. We have I could keep going. <laughs> and, and all of this has come together in the last, I would say, 12, 18 months. And this, I honestly believe, is enduring. It's permeating the government, that the Arctic is a place, aside from you know the, the homeland and national security implications, but that the Arctic is part of the foreign and the nexus between foreign policy and domestic policy for the United mm -hmm. States. And that's that's fundamentally different on this kind of scale. I think it really creates a stronger anchor into various levels of of commitment when it's seen as both a domestic and a foreign policy mm -hmm. issue. And I think also what we were both talking about in the moment that you know we were pleasant, happily surprised by how well the Arctic states coordinated their response, how the rest of the the network of Arctic actors responded. And I think one of the things that kind of supports that kind of action are kind of clearly stated long-term intentions and plans, even while in some level policymaking has to remain a bit nimble when mm -hmm. it comes to actual mm -hmm. implementation. So I think just to, to wrap up, maybe we can kind of share a few words, um, some of the maybe recommendations from the report or a few, a few final thoughts. I think for me, you know, given our overall message that you know, uncertainty can't lead to general inaction, that, and, there, and it hasn't. And there are lots of avenues to, to keep working effectively on, on Arctic challenges, most, most likely without Russia in many of these forums. And I think our report really highlighted for me the, the high importance of investing a lot of diplomatic resources and real policy implementation at the national level to work on climate change and mm. mitigating climate change and also enhancing human security for Arctic communities. And I think it's also the perfect or an important way of reaching out to, to key non-Arctic states with a keen Arctic interest, you know, to be in that bilateral conversation with India and China mm -hmm. over car, you know, black carbon mm -hmm. emissions and so on and get them, help them, ask them to enhance their activities mm -hmm. for the Arctic. And, uh, and so I think that's one platform in which the, I think these Arctic states that, and other actors that are cooperating so well together now 
perhaps could seek to achieve greater gains on the international, the global stage when it comes to climate negotiations and planning. And I think nationally, it's good to hear what you, to hear what you say about U.S. Arctic policy developing in this way. And I think that one thing, for example, the Arctic Council, you know, which currently operate, is not operating to mm-hmm. full effect and working only informally, but it has produced in the past just a treasure trove of recommendations of smart things to do at all levels in the Arctic. And I would very much like to see kind of an implementation push Make those things happen. Hmm. Why not? There was agreement that these are good for the Arctic. It's based on knowledge. It's based on up-to-date science. But there's, as in lots of global governance settings, there's just a huge implementation lag between good ideas and what happens on the ground. And a lot of that needs to happen at the national level, really, or at least decision-making about it. So in all of this, and I think one thing, a third thing, now I've, I promised myself only two, but I'm on you, you recommendation have, number three. Three. Three, rec- three wishes, three recommendations that I think also the the significant role of the indigenous peoples of the region and the really effectful and important role their organizations have had mm-hmm. in the Arctic Council, of course, should be enhanced and maintained even with while the Arctic Council or other Arctic bodies operate under more informality rules. Or why not translate that into more of an Arctic, also, also an Arctic Council spirit in broader global governance form and make sure that Arctic states are bringing with them the best of knowledge and representation, which would be inclusive of these rights holders. Any, yeah. I well, took all I, the recommendations. I, yeah, so I, perhaps I, you I, have a few more. I think <laughs> you, I think you tick them all off. But I, maybe I'll just highlight that you know sheer brilliance, I think, and and the right thing to do to include indigenous peoples in the very creation and the beginnings of the Arctic Council. That's quite novel when you look at other fora like like the Arctic Council. Not necessarily the case. And so, you know, it's not perfect. We know that. There's, there's a lot of room to make it right, and there's a lot of room for growth and inclusion. But, but that's different to me. And I can see, always saw, understood the value. But what's teased out in the report, just like it caught your eye, it caught my eye, that there, there's a, not just a role, there's a position, there's a place for that. In, in the future governance of the Arctic, whether we're talking about environmental risk and environment, or the nexus of environmental security and, and hard security and soft security, governance structures, whatever that is. In some ways, the Arctic has walked the talk. Again, not perfect, but, but at least there's effort there. There's a realization, um, as it should be, that, that these are important issues. Um, an- another takeaway to highlight is that nature abhors a vacuum. And I think the report shows that you have to work this. You can't just plant the seeds and walk away. You have to plant the seeds, you know, test the moisture of the soil, water when needed, have lots of light, you know, vigilance and diligence, uh, and care and feeding. And, and, and through that, you could possibly navigate. And maybe, maybe what we're talking about here is sort of a new, not just a new way of thinking about the Arctic, but, but a new way of, of framing the Arctic as well. We'll probably have an Arctic Council that will endure in some form that'll go out. Uh, we will have governance structures that we have today, maybe new ones, maybe overlapping ones. You know, th- things, oh my goodness, things should change, right? The Arctic has changed. Arctic Council should change or other systems should change. But I think the report provides for us a little bit of an insight as to maybe what the future Arctic could look like in terms of governing, managing, and our perspectives on it. We know the rate of change in the Arctic is you know, far exceeds other places on the globe. 
should not the way in which we govern, manage, lead, direct, um, nurture the landscape also change in that kind of pattern? And that's what I get from this report is that there are things to do. We need to get busy and do them in full recognition of what Russia has done and continues to do to Ukraine. But one nation cannot hold up the good work that has to happen. And I think the report helps us to figure out what good work has to happen without being held hostage to what is, you know, something that I don't know about you, but I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think that, you know, that's an advantage of the report is it invites the readers to kind of look at the broad mm -hmm. spectrum of possibilities and identifies some core principles for navigating forward in a way that we know, given the uncertainty shaping the environment, will have to be hopefully our the very best form of muddling through, which is better than inaction, for sure. Thank you for joining, Mike, and thanks to all of you who have taken the time to listen. You can find the report that formed the basis of our podcast and that is being tabled at the Arctic Security Roundtable in Munich, ready for download on NUPI and the Wilson Center's websites. Thank you. Thank you.